I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Um, so one example was this poor physicist called Paul Frampton. So he, you know, was in the running for a Nobel Prize for his all of his kind of work that, you know, kind of setting up the experiments in CERN. Uh, but then he started, like, online dating, started chatting to this woman who seemed like a supermodel, um, and ended up... Uh, arranging to meet her in Bolivia, but she didn't turn up, but asked him to carry her suitcase over the border to Argentina, which he did, and then he was arrested for carrying uh, two kilograms of cocaine. (laughs) Welcome to episode 44 of the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast. Joining me today is science writer David Robson, who wrote the acclaimed book, The Intelligence Trap. It's a brilliantly written and researched book about how the cleverest people in the world are often the ones who make the biggest mistakes, which is why I never make any mistakes. I made that joke last week. I really learned a lot from the book. It seems that the more intelligent among us, if we define intelligence by IQ and proficiency in certain areas, are so smart that they're able to create convincing arguments as to why their beliefs must be correct. It's how we end up with total geniuses on opposite ends of the political spectrum and why some really clever people are proponents of flat earth, theory, astrology or just basic religious beliefs. David tells some fascinating stories about Einstein and Sherlock writer Arthur Conan Doyle and talks about how we can focus more on things like wisdom and curiosity to prevent ourselves from falling for the intelligence trap. We speak about how to argue with someone who has opposing views to us without getting heated or emotional. We look at examining our own cognitive biases, chat about the grisly end to the life of Socrates, and think about the pictures of fairies with drawing pins in their navels that Arthur Conan Doyle mistook using his famed powers of deduction for belly buttons, showing fairies are born and give birth. By the way, I tell a story about an argument I had with my 13-year-old sister Madison last week. In case you're worried, we're all patched up now. I love her more than anything in the world and hope she doesn't mind me airing our dirty laundry. She's one of the kindest and most intelligent people I've had the pleasure of knowing. Back to David, who's been having similar arguments with his 39-year-old brother. David studied maths at Cambridge University and has written for the BBC, New Scientist, The Atlantic and many other top publications. His book has been a roaring success, and when I mentioned it on Twitter the other day, one of my favourite writers, Will Storr, tweeted his own admiration for it. You'll find David on Twitter at D underscore A underscore Robson. His website is davidrobson.me, and you can connect with him on LinkedIn. 
all in the show notes, as well as a link to his book, The Intelligence Trap, which you can find in all the normal places too. As for me, it's andrewgold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram, so get in touch. But for now, here's David. great book i've been loving it oh thanks yeah that's uh nice to hear really good man uh will store was loving it wasn't he oh yeah well you know i asked him to do an endorsement for it so <laughs> did you um yeah yeah so he he did give an endorsement actually uh which was quite nice but um so yeah i guess he <laughs> maybe felt a bit obliged to kind of say he liked it but oh, yeah well <laughs> i'm sure he did like it he's quite straight talking so um yeah maybe, no although he wouldn't have said i didn't like it I don't know. No, I don't know what they do yeah. with when you ask someone for an endorsement. I suppose nobody ever gets back and says, "Didn't really like it." Did that? Did that happen? No, it didn't happen to me. But I think what um, often happens is they'll just say, oh, "I was like too um, too busy <laughs> to read it," so you can kind of guess if they didn't like it from that. I guess. Yeah, I think if I got yeah. asked ever to do an endorsement, I would just have to force myself to like it enough to give a good mm. endorsement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I felt a bit in the past. Not that I've ever like endorsed a book I really didn't like, but you, I guess, you try to see the best in it, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Like make the most of what you've got. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is why you can't even trust me when I say I liked the book. I mean, I can't trust myself. It's, that's what your book's about, I suppose, isn't it? I went in with a a sort of bias where I was sort of making myself like it. Yeah, exactly, because it's in your interest, like, if you set up this programme, and then you're like, oh, actually, <laughs> it's a load of bollocks, like, um, that would be pretty bad for you. So you've got that kind of motivation that's going to shape your reasoning. Yeah, because, yeah, imagine if, so if somebody had sent it to me and said, God, this this guy's book is awful, like, he just confirms all the things that me and you and our, uh, from our identity we think is a bad thing, I probably would have read it, like, really, like, oh, what, what is he on about? Mm. Yeah, totally. And it would force you to kind of look at the studies kind of more critically, I guess, and to find all of the kind of holes in the argument that you might have missed. So you, you've got a maths degree from Cambridge. Like, yeah. what what is that like? What does maths get like after you leave school? Because I did it at A-level and I was rubbish at it. But does it get quite like, it, would it surprise me what it's actually like? Because I've, I've heard it's sort of quite theoretical and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's totally theoretical. So I often felt like when I would talk about my degree to people, that they would imagine you're doing like... um really difficult like percentage questions or, yeah. or something like that but no it's totally like um it's totally not you know not even really to do with numbers it's much more about proving kind of um different theorems so right. a lot of it is more logic really than like strictly maths in the way that we would think about maths in our everyday lives um but yeah I also did a bit of like um physics within my degree in statistics as well right does it get into like philosophy oh. Yeah, I guess like uh, my first course was all about um, number theory. And that's essentially like proving that all of the things we take for granted, like addition and subtraction and multiplication, like proving them from a logical basis, um, rather than just assuming that it works, like actually setting up a kind of framework for that. That's interesting. I, my favourite thing at maths was the Fibonacci sequence, because you get it in like everything in, in real life, you know, was it beehives or something, the golden ratio? Uh, yeah, I think so. And also, isn't it like a rabbit populations or something? Like, Is it? <laughs> I think so. Like if you start off with like one couple of rabbits, it's like then it follows a Fibonacci sequence, yes. Wow. Okay, so you did the maths stuff and then you've been working as a journalist, science 
person in general what led you to think about what what led you to i mean your passion i suppose is the mind is that right to say and what what leads you into the mind yeah i mean i'd always been interested in like uh kind of how the mind works from you know before i did my maths degree um but then when i became a science journalist um I was like interviewing loads of, you know, brilliant scientists and kind of writing about them. But you would often find these kind of stories around their lives that were quite surprising and didn't really seem to match with like what you, you know, like their discoveries and what you kind of knew about their academic career. Um, So one example was this poor physicist called uh, Paul Frampton. Um, So he you know, was in the running for a Nobel Prize for his all of his kind of work that, you know, kind of setting up the experiments in CERN. Like he came up with all of these like huge theories of physics that were being tested at CERN. Uh, but then he started like online dating, started chatting to this woman who seemed like a supermodel, um, well, who was claiming to be a supermodel, um, and ended up uh, arranging to meet her in Bolivia, but she didn't turn up, but asked him to carry her suitcase over the border to Argentina, yeah. which he did. And then he was arrested for carrying uh, two kilograms of cocaine. So, <laughs> you know, and that could be explained really easily as just like a lack of common sense. You know, maybe he mm. just had his head in the clouds. Mm. Or, or somewhere else, head lower, yeah. lower down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 precisely. But he, uh, you know, like he had actually been warned of this possibility by multiple people. And he just ignored all of their kind of arguments. And it was seemed to me like a really clear example of this idea of like motivated reasoning, where you're kind of applying your kind of brain power to just support your argument, like what you really want to be true. And he really wanted to believe that this beautiful woman was in love with him. Um, and so that kind of, you know, I was a new scientist at the time, there's a lot of talk about that case in the kind of newsroom. And that just kind of got me thinking more broadly about kind of what we mean about uh, when we say someone is intelligent and kind of what skills does that definition miss that would be really important in life in general. So there's Paul Frampton and you've got some really interesting other examples. Um, for example, I mean, Einstein, I had no idea that he, he spent the last sort of 20, 30 years in this sort of crazed loop of thinking. What happened with him? Yeah, I mean, you know, he all of his theories, I think, had been like very much based on kind of intuition, which he then used his kind of um, amazing knowledge and uh, expertise to kind of build the theories around his kind of intuitions about the way the universe worked. Um, so, you know, that was how he came up with these ideas of relativity, um, so special in general relativity. But he just really, really disliked the idea of quantum mechanics. Like, he just it didn't fit with the way he thought the universe should go. And so he was like a quantum denier in a way (laughs) like and just devoted all of his um kind of remaining years to kind of prove that it couldn't be true and that you could explain the universe in other ways and you know we now know that was just a complete waste of his time and it's kind of crazy to think what he might have achieved if he had been more open-minded about kind of all of these experimental results that were coming in that were disproving his idea that's fascinating. I, you wrote something in, uh, about he was looking for the thoughts of God or the way God thinks. Mm. Yeah, I can't remember the exact um, quote, but yeah, that kind of shows this kind of, um, it's kind of arrogant in a way. Like, And, you know, obviously he had the greatest mind like in the world at the time, but it's that idea that actually he was almost reaching like a godlike level of intellect that I think is kind of... Um, kind of really revealing that he he could have practiced a bit more humility kind of questioning his these intuitions that were we now know were obviously wrong 
I really like all these individuals. So I just want to get onto a couple more before we get onto the theories mm. and stuff. Because then the other one was Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock uh, books. Can you tell me about about him? Because again, this just blew my mind. Yeah, well, he's like uh, the best example in a way because he, you know, he had a background in science. He was like um, a practicing doctor as well as kind of writing the Sherlock Holmes character, who, you know, practices and is so eloquent about the kind of um, the art of logical deduction. Um, but in his private life, he, you know, like uh, really believed in the uh, kind of uh, idea of spiritualism and, you know, the idea that there were like these paranormal fairies that were kind of hanging around in people's gardens. Um, and he, um, you know, what's interesting there is that he didn't just kind of casually kind of believe it. He like really worked hard to kind of prove that that existed. Um, and, you know, like, so with the kind of idea of these fairies, he kind of drawn all of these new ideas from science about kind of electromagnetic fields to kind of explain why you couldn't see them with the naked eye. And like in the photos, there were like, um, obviously pins through their kind of uh, bellies <laughs> of these um, in the photos of the supposed photos of the fairies. Um, they were obviously like holding the cardboard together, but he kind of argued, oh no, that's just um, like evidence they've got belly buttons. And so they must be born through the same ways that like human beings are born. Like, right. <laughs> which is just like, he was obviously like applying a lot of creativity there. Um, but he just didn't listen to anyone who kind of actually tried to prove him wrong. And one of those guys was um, Harry Houdini, the illusionist who knew how you can kind of, all of the, these kind of sleight of hand tricks that you can use to kind of, uh, give the illusion that something's true when it's not. And he really, like, in a long correspondence, tried to persuade uh, Arthur Conan Doyle that, you know, that um, these mediums were fraudulent, that the fairies didn't exist. But um, Arthur mm. Conan Doyle just wasn't having any of it, basically, because he was using his intellect kind of almost against reason rather than to find the truth. He was just using it to rationalise what he wanted to believe. Could it be, then, that these mediums, even today you get a lot of mediums, I've... I've done one a documentary for the BBC about an exorcist for example and to this day this was a few years ago I don't know how much of it he was you know being a fraud and how much he really believed in his own powers and I suppose the power of the mind from he really could make himself believe in that stuff maybe do you think yeah 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 exactly I mean that's essentially what Arthur Conan Doyle was doing was kind of um kind of uh yeah like making himself believe in it because you know his wife he believed was also this great medium and there's this story where uh she claimed to be channeling um harry houdini's mother they were kind of yes. in this hotel room in atlantic city all all three of them and um you know she was doing this automatic writing like she was kind of um uh, sending this message from houdini's mother to houdini and it was yeah. like it was obviously not um not true to houdini because it's like he you know, nothing that his mother said, like, actually fit with anything within his life. But to Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife, it was totally convincing. Like, they really believed it. I don't doubt they genuinely believed it. It was something about Christianity, wasn't it? And Houdini was like, my mum's Jewish. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And she's not dead. No, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was her birthday. <laughs> and um, <laughs> she didn't once mention the fact that it was her birthday, which Houdini also took to be, like, evidence that wasn't true. But Tell me then, what is an IQ? And this was this was the way that people believed intelligence worked a while ago, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, um, there's been a lot of kind of IQ bashing, but actually it's quite good at what it does. And um, 
So, you know, IQ consists of like these uh, kind of battery of tasks that would be like um, nonverbal reasoning problems or kind of uh, memory tests, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, then you look at the kind of there's a kind of common underlying kind of brain power. We call it the G factor or general intelligence that kind of predicts how good you are at all of those different tasks. Um, and that is quite uh, good at predicting then uh, things later in life. So people's academic success um, and their professional success, if they're in a kind of traditionally academic um, discipline. I mean, that shouldn't be surprising because that was exactly why they were designed. And, you know, all of the skills that it's testing are directly relevant for those, um, you know, for academia or for being a lawyer or for, you know, um, being a scientist. So that's not, it's actually like useful in that sense to kind of just uh, kind of give an indication of who might benefit from kind of more help in a certain area or um, but the problem was that people kind of assumed that this general intelligence would just be universally um, a universal good at everything, including things like rational decision making or kind of um, creativity or the ability to kind of weigh up evidence even handedly. Um, and what mm. we know is that's not true. And it's like I kind of think of it as being like the engine of a car, you know, like it can help you to get to places like really quickly but you kind of need the brakes and the steering wheel and the GPS and stuff to make sure that you kind of apply that engine power correctly. And intelligence is exactly the same. Like you need checks and balances. Otherwise you end up like um, Arthur Conan Doyle and you're actually using your intelligence to kind of try to prove something that is completely wrong. And is it right then that, as, as you say in the book, that the, the smarter people are more prone to these kinds of errors? I think if you don't have the checks and balances uh, in place, then yeah, you are more prone to being more wrong on certain issues. It's like you're driving that car off a cliff, basically. <laughs> and, you know, I think we see that with things like um, climate change denialism, that often the deniers are kind of more scientifically literate than the average mm. person. Um, it's just that they're using their intelligence to kind of dismiss all of the abundant mm. evidence that... Um, would prove that climate change is happening. Um, and I think we see it now with kind of COVID denialism as well. It's like these people aren't like dim who are the uh, COVID sceptics or lockdown sceptics, yeah. but they're not applying their uh, intelligence in a kind of fair way to assess the evidence. This is sort of why I never have, uh, like a, people always say, why don't you have a flat earther on the show or something? And the thing is, a lot of them are much smarter than me and they really know their stuff so i'm sure a flat earther could probably win an argument or a debate with me about the earth being flat because i don't know the information so i think why would i platform someone who who has these views you know so what what else is there to intelligence then and how can we guard against some of these biases i think the main kind of source of the intelligence trap is this process um called like motivated reasoning that we kind of hinted at with like Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, and that is just this idea that you've kind of got this uh, really emotion, like emotionally very powerful reason for wanting to believe something. And then you're kind of just applying your reasoning in this kind of um, very one-sided kind of manner. Um, but what we do know is that some traits can protect you against that. And one of the traits that does is um, curiosity. So curiosity is a bit harder to test than like intelligence, but scientists do have some really good like measures to to assess people's curiosity. 
And what they find is that actually um, it completely negates the motivated reasoning. Um, so you could have someone going into a situation, they might even have been a climate change denier previously, but then you give them the information about the actual science and their curiosity like allows them to look at that information with an open mind because they're kind of, um, I guess, just the kind of desire to learn new information overpowers that kind of emotional pull of their preconceptions. So then they're much more likely to adjust their opinions in a kind of more rational, more even-handed kind of way. I've noticed this bias in myself just in a really simplistic way, because from a young age, I've been a, a football fan of the team Tottenham Hotspur. Um, and from a young age, you know, my dad would get me the Tottenham kit to wear and he'd say Arsenal bad, Tottenham good. And that's happened since I was like two years old. And my identity then became about Tottenham. So I end up having these arguments with like an Arsenal fan who will say that their player is better than a Tottenham player. And I'm convinced the Tottenham player is better. And there are arguments like that, like that up and down the country all the time. Yeah. And I guess... We're all just, there's no way to be entirely curious without that losing that identity you have. And the same, I guess, left and right wing, that's, that's one of the main arguments people are having all the time. And you get such smart people really far left and really far right. I mean, what what do we do about that? How do we make the country less divisive? Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you've like totally, that's the perfect example, I think, the football example, because it's kind of inoffensive to anyone <laughs> apart from Arsenal fans, maybe. But yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Like no one wants, you know, you feel like if you're, if one of these kind of core ideas that's like key to your identity kind of crumbles, you kind of worry that everything else that kind of makes you, you is going to crumble too. And that's what really powers the motivated reasoning. And that's why like you're going to apply everything, including your intelligence to um, prove yourself right. And the more intelligent you are, the better you are at doing that. Um, I mean, it's not easy to kind of overcome that kind of, uh, that kind of, identity uh, kind of motivated reasoning but identity protective motivated reasoning but um yeah i mean we can try to cultivate our own curiosity if we want to kind of come over that ourselves and there are other psychological techniques that can improve our own individual reasoning so um something that i find quite powerful is this idea of uh self distancing and that's the idea mm -hmm. that if you kind of move yourself a little bit away from that kind of identity that's kind of driving this um, reasoning, then you become more objective. And one way to do that, so with politics, is just to try to imagine how you would think about a problem from like a completely different perspective, like maybe from the perspective of someone who's, you know, doesn't live in your country. Like, you know, if you're thinking about Brexit, maybe try to imagine what someone in Australia thinks of the whole situation. Um, and so that I think is really powerful. And it's just this idea that if you, you you don't want to kind of be totally removed from your feelings, but just kind of stepping away can just kind of help you to um, assess the evidence more rationally. In addition to curiosity, I suppose, uh, lack of emotion or, or being being too impulsive and emotional, I find myself getting emotional when somebody says something that I don't agree with. Uh, and it actually hurts. I feel a physical pain mm. when somebody yeah. says something that doesn't correspond with my identity or however, whatever that is in politics, football, whatever it is. I feel my brain hurting and I feel the defense kick in and start to do all sorts of logical mental gymnastics mm. to yeah. to make sure that that person can't hurt me anymore with their barbed thoughts. You know, it's scary, right. isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. And I think it's like when you notice that happening, and then if you apply this idea of like self distancing, then yeah. that is then like a really good solution. So it's like I think the awareness is really important, but then having the techniques to be able to overcome it um, <laughs> can really help. I find myself being aware of it, but then not wanting to do it because it's almost like my belief in identity is like a warm bath, and I'm just I just want to slip back into that warm bath and push all the other things out of the way, and it's it's not worth being more impartial because I want to have my warm bath identity but that's bad thinking I suppose (laughs) yeah 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 exactly and it's really difficult to persuade yourself in like the heat of the moment but I I often think with these kinds of things that even if you you know you might argue really strongly like on the day but then maybe like that evening or a few days later when you like look back at the argument you can kind of apply this idea of self-distancing just to kind of question whether you were really uh, as justified as you thought you were. Do you find this kind of thinking and what you've learned from researching and writing the book, does it help in your personal interactions? Do you have uh, partners or, I don't know, children, family, whoever that you are arguing with and you go, no, I'm going to take a step back, I'm going to self-distance? Um, yeah, it's funny you say that, actually, because my boyfriend finds it quite irritating, actually. But um, <laughs> especially what he finds annoying is when I'll like uh, <laughs> try to, make him self-distance <laughs> if I yes. think he's being unreasonable. So I, I knew you were going to say that because it's the exact problem I have with my girlfriend. Oh, really? Because yeah. you end up seeming like an arrogant jerk and I, I, I feel myself doing it. I feel myself oh. going, well, let's both take a step back. And it's like, who the hell do I think I am? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think it makes you very popular necessarily. No, but, no. Yeah. It's awful going out with somebody who does that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 totally. Those those poor people, we should send them out together to just leave us and our controlling manipulative thoughts to tests that we're doing. Those poor people. Um, But it must help sometimes, I suppose, to sort of self-analyze and step outside of oneself. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely think it does. And especially with like work stuff, it's a bit easier, especially if you're like on the end of an email or something, you know, like, um, and like you can feel that kind of knee-jerk reaction kind of building but then it's like actually then that's the perfect opportunity to just kind of think is this you know like apply self-distancing and think well is this going to help me in the long term even if it makes me feel good in the short term there was an example in the book um, by somebody called Sternberg about types of intelligence and it was it was saying that a particular type of intelligent person would when presenting an idea to their boss um, suggest two different possibilities and one would be bad so that the boss feels like they've chosen the good one instead of just presenting that good one in the first place to massage his ego and you were saying that you wouldn't have thought of that I wouldn't have thought to do that Uh, and partly because of my own ego I would I wouldn't want the boss to think that I had given a bad choice as well as a good one isn't that sort of almost sociopathic I thought (laughs) that kind of way of thinking yeah a little bit um I guess it's not so much like sociopathic, but it's kind of, um, it's definitely like recognising that sometimes to kind of get what you want, you have to kind of be a little bit manipulative. Um, Mm. But I think with, let's just say like the way I applied that, it's like I wouldn't give like a totally awful (laughs) example to kind of counteract my preferred one. It would just change the way I kind of framed the two options and like just make me think a bit more carefully that I, uh, about the way I presented myself. And I think that was Sternberg's point, really, is that some people might be really good on the kind of analytical IQ kind of intelligence, but they don't maybe recognise that sometimes you have to be pragmatic in the way you deal with people to kind of 
to mm-hmm. get to get ahead and to get and to help other people to kind of achieve what they want to because I'm sure like bosses also sometimes have to use these kind of nudge techniques to get everyone to kind of um get along well uh without necessarily explicitly telling them all the time what to do what happened when you tried to help out in a classroom and it was a disaster Oh yeah, so um, that's my friend Emma, um, who lives in Oxford, and so she had invited me. It was before I was writing the book, actually, um, okay. and she invited me to kind of help uh, with her lesson. And it was just like um, I lacked that to, that practical intelligence of like how to uh, get kids to kind of do what you want, you know. Like um, she was kind of manipulating them in all kinds of ways, in like a really you know benign way, but like um, she just knew what to say to get them to do what she wanted, and like. Um, I was the total opposite. Like, I just could not maintain control of the class, like, because yeah. I hadn't, like, absorbed all of those kind of uh, pragmatic techniques. And I would just say in general, like, my practical intelligence, um, according to kind of uh, Robert Sternberg's kind of uh, theories, would be lower than my analytical intelligence. Like, I just don't absorb the kind of tacit knowledge as quickly as other people like my friend Emma. And what can, you know, teachers like Emma... What what can they do? I suppose you were saying to to get, make children more curious. Is that right? To make them mm. be able, that that's the main thing to do. Would you say? Yeah, 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 totally. And we know that school is really bad at making people um, kind of at cultivating people's curiosity. So actually, like all kids are like naturally curious. But what you find is that in the first like couple of years at school, that curiosity just drops uh, significantly. Like I think uh, mm. before school, like each kid asks like twenty questions an hour. Um, really soon into school that drops to like two questions an hour because it's just kind of um, drilled out of you that you just have to wait and kind of passively absorb the information rather than um, kind of looking for it yourself. Um, Obviously like teachers kind of have to maintain that control like I was saying like Emma had to kind of uh, keep the class kind of um, in the right direction but what good teachers can do is still kind of uh, encourage curiosity in other ways and one of the best ways to do that is to show curiosity themselves um mm. so like if they're doing a kind of uh, science experiment this was like a um this was actually shown in a, a research paper like if the teacher kind of shows that they themselves aren't sure what's going to happen and they're kind of improvising to kind of test out new hypotheses but actually then the kids when they get to do their own experiments are much more creative with the way they do the experiments they're much more engaged they're learning a lot better and that's actually increasing their factual knowledge so it's kind of like a win-win it's like it's improving like the traditional kinds of learning we what have always wanted to instill in kids but it's also then improving their thinking and making them kind of more original thinkers as well so i suppose the teachers could pretend that they don't know what's going to happen in a certain experiment yeah that was exactly in this um uh study the teacher had kind of they were, I don't know, showing like what happens when you dissolve things in Coca-Cola or something. But then they okay. had noticed they had like a smarty on their desk. And so they were like, oh, I wonder what will happen if I drop this in instead. And it was just like a tiny little improvised kind of comment, you know, one comment. But actually that had a really big effect on the class because it just kind of communicated to them the idea that actually it's not just about kind of following a protocol in a really rigid manner, but that actually you can follow like, you can ask interesting questions yourself and that that can be valued as well. I'm at an age now and I suppose you are as well. Are you in your 30s? Yeah, yeah, 35, yeah. All right, I'm uh, 30, what am I? I'm going to be 32 in a couple of weeks. 
getting there. Yeah. Um, but it's an age where everybody, loads of people are having kids, right? Kids left, right, yeah. and center. And I suppose that advice is also good for your kids because I've always thought, what do you want from a from a kid? What do you want the kid to be? As you you want it to be happy, and and oh. I don't know what else there is. Do you do you want them to be super intelligent? Well, they're not necessarily going to be happy. I, I think some of the evidence you you put together was that if they're curious, they'll also have a better sort of uh, mental well being and everything as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of universally good to be curious. I mean, it kind of because like a lot of what we find rewarding in life is like comes from our curiosity. It's not just about achieving things for kind of status. It's, you know, it's those kind of personal goals that um, came about because you really wanted to know something. Um, so that's what one of the studies um, that I cite kind of looked at. And it was just looking at what predicted people's happiness over two over a two-year period. And um, what predicted people's happiness was that whether they had like lots of personal goals they were trying to achieve, but what predicted whether they would like start that process in the first place was their curiosity and so you had some people who just weren't curious at all and they were just kind of getting on with life probably working really hard but not really then like pursuing all of this other stuff that was going to help them to like get the most out of their life um and you want your kids to be the other way around like you want them to be fully like like eternally like fascinated by what's around them hmm I'm just wondering if you should let them. My little sister, I had a big argument with her. She's 13. Um, and we had this big argument on the phone the other day because she believes in horoscopes and stuff like that. And she's 13 uh-huh. years old. So really, I should just like let her have her belief. And I just couldn't. And I couldn't not push her because I wanted to sort of, you know. But I wonder if we, if you should let kids at that age just have those kind of beliefs. Well, I don't know. Yeah, because I'm also like a strong believer that actually you should teach critical thinking from a young age so you know in that sense I think like uh but maybe that's something that should come from schools definitely even in like any kind of lesson like history even maths I think you can use to teach critical thinking um and then you just hope they maybe their curiosity wouldn't go down that kind of path but would go down like uh you know curious um they'd be curious about kind of stuff that can be proven by evidence but but in the end I think she'll probably find out from her own experience that the horoscopes aren't that accurate and then maybe that's a good it's almost like an inoculation for future misinformation if she kind of realizes that um you know you can't just uh, believe everything you read yeah I, well she was she was saying that i i did try that i was trying to get her reasoning going and her logic and i was saying you know okay so how does it work then and she was going well it's to do with the sun and the moon and they affect your soul and i was like okay well do plants have souls and she was like she was like no just things that are alive and i was like well they're alive and she was like yeah and she hung up the phone on me um and, mm. and then my stepmom was messaging going look can you just apologize and all that and i was going oh, oh yeah. yeah i wasn't even i was i said it's fine to believe in it but i was just trying to and then i sent her um a message to my sister just saying i'm oh, sorry and she said i've i've uh, i've received your apology but i don't accept it oh wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> i guess it's a difficult age <laughs> well she's an aries so oh yeah that explains everything so one one thing i was interested in is that um, there was there did seem to be some correlation between brain size and intelligence, right? And also brain wrinkliness as yeah. another thing. I mean, that can't be entirely right because like men have bigger heads and brains than women and don't seem to be more intelligent than women. And also, I mean, I've got a big head. I don't know. Does that mean I have a big brain? And maybe not. Maybe there's space between it. And then shorter people with smaller heads are often much brighter than me. So what's the deal there? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, these are quite loose correlations. So, I mean, I think 
um, yeah, you know, it's not going to, the brain size thing is not going to explain a lot of people's intelligence. And I also think it's also brain size to body size is more important than just like the sheer size Ooh. of your head, which is, I think, what's important with the kind of apparent kind of uh, gender differences is that actually, though, when you look at, it all depends on kind of how you measure it. But I think the general consensus is that the gender difference isn't important for kind of brain size or intelligence, obviously. Um, but maybe when you're comparing two individuals of similar body size, then it's just a slight, a slightly important predictive factor. Same with the wrinkliness. I think what mm. is more important is the connectivity between different brain regions. So um, more intelligent people, as measured by IQ, have um, slightly uh, kind of better, more effective networks within their brain, which allows the them to process information more quickly and to kind of connect ideas. Um, but again, that's just like, that's just measuring, that's only important if you're simply interested in the kind of IQ idea of like analytical intelligence. And that also is more important if you are looking at kind of timed tests where like quick thinking is more important than like more deliberative, slow thinking. Um, and that's what I think has been like this really big misconception throughout this study of intelligence and throughout education is this idea that it's like it's like a race. It's like who gets to the idea first is kind of better. You know, like the the kid that puts their hand up first in the classroom is like the smartest or, you know, like uh, exams are timed. So if you can write an essay that's quite coherent really quickly, then that's like uh, kind of suggests you're more intelligent than someone who would need to take a whole day. Actually, like if your um, reasoning is going to be a lot more sophisticated, if you take more time, it should be considered just as important as kind of the speed of your reasoning, basically. But our brains, I think, have gotten bigger over time. Is that right? Over like thousands of years? Yeah, 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 totally. So, I mean, that is one of the big, you know, like differences um, between us and the other apes is that our brains, even compared to our body size, is like um, a lot bigger. I wonder what it'd be like to meet wanted like a human from what 100,000 years ago would they seem slow to us yeah that's uh, kind of uh debatable so um especially because actually like brain size kind of peaked about 20 or 30,000 years ago and um it's been declining since then oh. um <laughs> so maybe they would have seemed like super brainy like maybe they <laughs> yeah. didn't need to be more intelligent to deal with the challenges that they were facing and then it's almost like as society kind of evolved like maybe that wasn't so necessary. But I think also, like, it could just be that our brain size is smaller, but we have more efficient connectivity, like I'd mentioned, and that we're making mm. up for it in that way. So, yeah, it's really difficult to, to tell. But I think, like, the general idea is we probably haven't changed in intelligence much in the last 100,000 years, to be honest. I guess if it's getting smaller, it's a bit like a new MacBook or something. Like, it's more powerful, but it's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. would like to think that anyway. I don't yeah. know. Where do you stand on stuff like a, a lot of work uh, places are putting in place uh, stuff like unconscious bias training? From 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 your book, it would appear that that seems like a good idea on the surface. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's been a, quite a bit of controversy over that lately, uh, partly because like the experimental results uh, don't suggest that the techniques that are being used in the workplace are mm. as effective as we would like it to be. Um, it's really difficult to see how it's being applied in the real world because you can see like each, you know, each company might be using different techniques. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why the 
uh, data is kind of messy. I mean, I'd say in general, it should be a good idea, but I think we just need to refine exactly what we're doing there. You would think, I guess, that that people who already think, you know, believe in unconscious biases and these kinds of things would be very open to it anyway. And, and those who are not uh, would go in sort of feeling like, why am I being made to go to this? And I, that that might be a stumbling block, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. And there's also, I think, the issue that um, you might have, like, the fact that people have gone to the training, they might feel like gives them a license. It's like, well, I've proven myself not to be racist <laughs> now. So uh, they don't see it as a kind of um, themselves as a work in process <laughs> that needs to kind of check their kind of prejudices all the time. Like that moral licensing is like a really big issue in uh, psychology in general. And I think like absolutely in that situation, that's going to be a problem. And I suppose it can, I mean, who's giving the tests? You can never know how biased the person who's teaching is one way or the other. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's all kinds of issues with how it's applied, like even though it's something that like we should be working towards. I really like what, what you say in your book, and it's obviously that Socrates kind of thing of of like the one who knows the least knows the most. It's so it's such a it's a little mind trap actually reading that because you find yourself, unless it's just me, you find yourself reading that going, Yeah, because I know that I'm not that smart. And then the back of your head's going, which means I'm very smart. And then go, No, but that means I'm one of the stupid <laughs> yeah. ones, because that's what he's just written that I'm because because even stupid people well, not stupid people, but unintelligent people think they're good at admitting they're not intelligent. Right. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Or like, say you have this kind of biased blind spot where like um, the people who are the, yeah, like the most biased think they're the least biased. Um, so there's always this kind of gap. Um, yeah, I mean, that's super difficult to to get around. But I would say like, for me personally, it would be the, the goal there isn't, is to kind of try to remove it from your identity completely. So it's not about whether you are better or worse than the average person. Mm. But like what is important is just when you're making an assumption to look specifically at that assumption and to question like, is that right? Or is, or am I being biased in this particular case? And to try to look at that evidence um, kind of even-handedly and to try to argue against yourself. So to try to deliberately find the evidence that would contradict your point of view. Um, so I think that's more like applying Socrates' uh, philosophy, but in a kind of practical way. He came to quite a, a sort of grisly end. I, I, I think I must be the only person who didn't know this. I didn't know that, you know, it, 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 I'll be completely honest right now. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, it's the same guy for me. That's the same guy. <laughs> I don't know. That's Greek person from thousands of years ago. Um, yeah. but what happened to Socrates? <laughs> you know, I'm ashamed to say it. I've kind of... Um, I've forgotten the details, but I mean, so basically he was having, he was being tried for apparently misleading the people in Athens because this oracle had said that he was the wisest person and no one wanted him like as an individual to be wiser than like the politicians and everyone else. And then he kind of went around like the city kind of questioning people because he was like, oh no, that can't be true. I'm going to prove that it's not true. Um, and like what he found was that like each kind of expert that he interviewed was actually not very wise outside of their kind of area of expertise. Ah. And that was where he came up with this idea that the wisest person is the uh, person who knows they know nothing, which he presented at this kind of trial. Um, uh, but he lost the trial and I think he was poisoned. I can't remember how he was poisoned now. But yeah, it was a nasty end. Yeah. Man. Maybe it was Hemlock. I can't remember. But yeah, he... Uh, yeah, it was like capital punishment. Man, that's that's shitty. Although I sort of, again, I almost don't believe any of those things because I feel like they're mixed up with the myths 
I suppose they must be historically accurate. Is that right, Socrates and these people? They they were actually there. Uh, I think we probably like assume that like he was a real person, but we only know all of this from Plato's account of Socrates' trial. Um, mm. And so, yeah, it's really difficult to separate like how much of this is kind of mythology or how much of it is almost like a device used by Plato to kind of sell mm. his own ideas in a way. Um, but yeah, I mean. I think in a way I'm not so interested in the origin of like who it was who came up with these these ideas because I think the strength of the ideas like themselves is like so important and so powerful that thousands of years later it can still influence the way we look at different problems. Yeah, would you say so- that's so- Socratic, is that a word? That Socratic um, uh, belief yeah. is pretty central to your book and your way of thinking. Yeah, 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 totally. It kind of underlines the whole of the book and the book's message of kind of intellectual humility being as important as your actual kind of IQ or intellectual prowess. What is a fixed mindset and a growth mindset? Mm, So uh, it's kind of related to intellectual humility, but um, a fixed mindset is where you, you see any skill or ability that you're kind of trying to learn or that you think you've mastered as being like very much kind of central to yourself and kind of something that's innate so it's like if you're great that means you're like a great person and that you are naturally wonderful um if you fail at it then that is like a real personal insult um Mm. because that is like you know there's something wrong with you as a person um the growth mindset is the opposite so that is like you see every skill as being this kind of incremental uh the result of an incremental process so if you fail at something once you can it's not like so personally upsetting because you just think well I can learn from that mistake and kind of slowly improve and no matter where I am at the moment I will be able to get better um there's been a there's been a bit of misunderstanding about the growth mindset because some people read it to mean like oh if you've got the growth mindset you can be wonderful at anything and that's not actually what Carol Dweck, who came up with the idea, is trying to say. What she's just trying to say is that actually, with the growth mindset, you recognise that you can improve, and you don't know how much you can improve. And that having that kind of attitude is probably going to get you further than if you have a fixed mindset, and then you kind of avoid challenges, because that might question your idea about yourself being this wonderful kind of person. So, you know, a kid in class might actually have proven to be really good at maths but then they might actually choose to like study an easier course because they can maintain that illusion by being top of the class in like the easier course than um kind of facing like more difficult competition if they kind of entered a harder course instead so that's how it applies to education but I actually think it just applies to like almost every area of life that like the fixed mindset can be very limiting as you try to protect your idea of yourself. The misconception that you described is, is quite Gladwellian, this sort of Malcolm Gladwell idea of like, if you do 10,000 hours of anything, you'll be amazing at it. And I, I, I guess what Dweck was, wasn't was necessarily saying you'll be amazing at it, but you'll be better if you put the effort and make it a process. So I, I suppose yeah. with it's another one with your kids. If you have kids or something, I'm obsessing over this. All my friends suddenly oh. got their, you know, <laughs> pregnant suddenly. Yeah. Uh, you'd be teaching them curiosity and also this idea of like it's not the results that you got it's the process that was important yeah that's exactly it and I think so like the other way it's kind of misinterpreted by parents is this idea that like um you have to praise your kid 
um, all the time. Like, even if they mm. fail, it's like, oh, but you try so hard, you're like a winner. And it's like, actually, Carol Dweck says that's the worst thing <laughs> that you can do. Like, huh. you actually, no, praising them for the effort is fine. What you don't want to say is, but you're a genius anyway. Because, <laughs> um, because that's just reinforcing this idea of like the fixed mindset in a way. It's like, you're much better as a parent to be like, well, you you know, did badly that time, but why don't we just look at like what you could do to improve, like what practical steps you can take next to kind of to incrementally get better. And that's a lot more powerful than just kind of always trying to like boost a kid's ego and always trying to make them feel that they're automatically good at something. Like actually you want to let them know that they can they can get better through kind of working hard at something. What do you think is like the future of intelligence? Just because this is your domain, I'm interested in just if, if you happen to have thoughts on, you know, will we start to upgrade our brains um, and, and will that help? Will that Can you become more curious and have a better growth mindset? Or do we even need that stuff if we've got artificial stuff in our heads? Uh, yeah, I mean, we definitely do need all of this stuff. Um, I mean, so the interesting thing is that actually I spoke about kind of brain size reaching a peak like 20,000 years ago. Um, IQ reached a peak maybe like 10 years ago and is actually decreasing a bit. Um, That doesn't mean necessarily like we're getting stupider, but just that the skills that we're kind of cultivating um, are different from what they had been in the past. Um, uh, And, you know, so I think actually that being said, then this could just be a good opportunity for us to think, well, like, you know, what do we want to cultivate? Like, I still think like the skills that are measured by IQ are important and we don't want to let that kind of drop because of changes in education. But I think we could also try to cultivate all of these kinds of things like um, creativity, curiosity, the growth mindset, um, critical thinking. You know, those are things that should be incorporated into education. And like together, that would like make people like not just like more intelligent, but like wiser and like Hmm. better thinkers in all kinds of domains um and you know if we ever get to a stage where like technology can actually you know we can kind of have upgrades or implants or whatever i still think that's going to be really important like we have to it's like i said at the beginning like that uh we look at if you look at the brain and our brain power is like and our intelligence is like the engine of a car well like you don't when you upgrade your car you don't necessarily just want the faster engine you want all of the other you want like the best of everything like best suspension you know best navigation system and that's exactly what we should be thinking about always when we're looking at like um the kind of the ways we think about intelligence and cultivate intelligence and change intelligence it should always be how we're going to make sure that we apply that in the best way just going back to um Another story from the book that I really liked was the one about um, somebody who got caught for uh, terrorism uh, in Madrid, even though he was in the States, because his fingerprints nearly matched the fingerprints. And it was another example of intelligent people getting stuff wrong. What what happened there? Mm, so he, you know, was not guilty. And um, what's interesting with, about this is it's actually the uh, FBI's forensic examiners that were like the people falling for the intelligence trap. Um because they had this assumption, uh, which may have been influenced by the fact that he had married um, a Muslim woman from Egypt originally. Um, and, you know, it was after 9-11. Um, it was in like 2004. So like tensions were still really high. And, you know, actually, like in hindsight, like most forensic examiners would say the fingerprints don't look 
<laughs> totally like they don't look identical at all because that's actually like the whole top left hand portion of the print was completely yeah. different but the examiners had kind of used this motivated reasoning to say well that must just be that another fingerprint was magically like overlaid on top and it was like perfectly aligned with the rest of his finger but um you know they took this it was a tiny tiny possibility that that was the case um they like ran with that and they said they were like 99% sure that he was the criminal involved. And then they used all kinds of like ways of dismissing the fact he hadn't left the US that, you know, I think they used his daughter's Spanish homework as evidence that he'd been oh, yeah. Spain. <laughs> like, um, so, you know, they were really applying like motivated reasoning. Like no one could question their skills. Like the mo- they're the most skilled examiners in the world, like the best, they have the best training. But um, in this case, they were letting their assumptions just like completely override all of their reasoning skills. You just can't get complacent, I guess. Is that that yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, totally. And there was like there was an institutional problem there because it was kind of independently checked by different examiners, but they all knew the details of the case and they all knew what the other examiners had, uh, what decision they had come to. So the um, Itchil Draw, the kind of researcher who's kind of looked into this case and lots of other cases in forensic science, he calls this a kind of bias cascade, where it's like it's like dominoes. It's like passing from one person to another, and like causing like um, basically a whole group of people to um, to have the same bias. Whereas actually, if they had kind of looked at it completely independently without any uh, any information around the case apart from just asking like, are these two prints the same? Um, they would have like discovered the error really uh, early on in the process. But he could have really, you know, suffered fatal consequences. He could have been put to death. Mm, yeah, or he was definitely worried about like being sent to Guantanamo Bay, and he was, Oof. you know, it was the trial was kind of approaching. It seemed like it, yeah, it didn't look good for him. But it was just lucky that the Madrid police force kind of found the real com- culprit before anything bad happened. But, wow, that would have been awful. Yeah. How has the reaction to the book been? Because it's been, what, a year and a half or so since it came out? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, pretty good, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, I haven't... I do get, like, um, I'd say, like, maybe 90% of the reactions positive. Um, and then I do get quite, you know, like, one in 10 reviews or one in 10 emails are like, oh, well, I think you've fallen into the intelligence trap yourself because <laughs> like, because <laughs> you dismiss paranormal activity and... <laughs> Oh, Actually, <laughs> yeah so that's um, quite frustrating but you know I was hoping and I still think a lot of people will have read it like this that even if they believe in one of the things that you know I don't believe in that they could still yeah. take a lot from the book you know and I'm not what I was trying with this book like I was definitely not trying to say that these people are stupid if they believe mm. in that thing but just to explain like the processes that could lead people to believe stuff that isn't supported by evidence. I think you specifically say they're they're quite likely to be intelligent if they believe those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, like Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, totally. So in a way, it's kind of could be seen as like a form of flattery. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That is an interesting point because obviously, you know, having made documentaries on those kinds of things before, always from a very, uh, you know, sceptical viewpoint, it's really funny as well because the people you meet who believe in that stuff they always start by saying i'm a skeptic and as soon as they say that i'm like you're definitely not (laughs) they go i'm a skeptic and they go but haven't you seen this video and this video where there's a light Mm. in the background and stuff like that and it's like you're not a skeptic come on so (laughs) yeah yeah, i get the same uh messages i still get emails i did this exorcism documentary came out um two and a half years ago i think on the bbc i still get 
emails from people uh, once or twice a week saying uh, either that they know of an exorcist who actually is real or that I'm an idiot uh, <laughs> and I went in with my own biases and stuff like that. And the thing is, I can't really tell them they're wrong because I did go in with my own biases. You know, I went in believing there was obviously no such thing as ghosts and stuff. So Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I find it interesting that, like, um, you know, there's even a video of an adult basically saying exactly uh, what you were just saying, that, like, um, he was like, I've been the, you know, utmost sceptic for 30 years, and I've tried every possible method of trying to disprove these theories, but uh, none of them disproved it. Um, so, yeah, it's really difficult, but I think, I do think there's, I think, in a way, there's a misunderstanding of what sceptical thinking actually mm. means, and, like, um a lot of people, and I see this a lot with the kind of discussion around um, kind of COVID and the lockdowns, is that people think the being sceptical is just automatically rejecting the mainstream theory. And they think if you're yeah. like going with like an oddball theory, you're actually like a better critical thinker. Um, but like reflexive, like scepticism of that kind of kind is actually, it's like not any smarter than like totally believing every single thing you hear. Um, there's mm. that saying that you should be, uh, open-minded but not so open-minded that your brain falls out and I think that that is the error that kind of um, a lot of people make when they think they're being sceptical. How do you debate with someone like that somebody who says there's no climate change there's no or the earth is flat or that ghosts are real and stuff like that I, even, or religion is another one uh, I don't. I don't think it's controversial to say. I mean, this audience. Has, I've done a lot of you know spoken to a lot of atheists and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you don't. You you don't believe in God and stuff, do you? Do you? No, no, I don't. I mean, no. yeah, I'm kind of yeah, I'm an atheist. Yeah. Phew. Um, no. So so <laughs> yeah. that stuff as well. The, the God stuff. I mean, how how do you have that debate? And they're saying you, they just say to you, you're being closed-minded. What do you say to that? Mm, it's tough because I think. So my brother, um, basically, if there's a conspiracy theory, he will believe it. Um, okay. So, you know, <laughs> a, a, it's a bit like that conversation you, you said you had with your sister. Like, it's very okay. similar with my brother, but just about, yeah. you know, uh, almost... How, no how old is he? Um, 38 oh. now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a little different, the situation. But it's like, I can't, I don't know, like, I when I have those conversations, I often try not to give a point of view at all but just to ask like questions like you were saying it's like well why do you you know especially if you ask like uh mechanistic questions and it's like well if you think bill gates is like organizing like <laughs> you know um he, if he organized the pandemic but like how actually could he go about that and how does he keep so many people quiet like why aren't there any proper whistleblowers and why can't it be proven and like why can't why wouldn't any newspapers run that story because it would be bigger than Watergate it would be like the biggest story of the you know century um I can't say it actually helps but it's probably a bit more constructive than like um if I just try to kind of uh just present the, the facts as I see them without engaging that kind of um interrogative process or that kind of question it's a bit like the Socratic method again and I think like by asking questions of yourself and other people you it's generally more constructive than just kind of trying to like uh, butt heads over the the actual kind of facts as you see them. I had an argument with someone like that recently, and I tried I tried to concede. I always try and concede as much as possible at the beginning of an argument or debate, mm -hmm. and I'm going, "That's true. I might have that bias and all that stuff." 
And then they jump in it. They go, aha, you see? You admit it. You have biases. I'm like, oh, can't win. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I had seen some papers showing that actually if you do, you know, concede like some like holes in your knowledge, you know, like if you're honest basically about what you do and don't know, that that does improve the discussion compared to if you kind of go in there with a high level of arrogance. It's like you're the intellectual humility is kind of contagious in a way. Um, so I guess it's just like if we weren't doing these things, then the conversations could be even worse than they are. But it's like there's no easy solution as far as I can see to like um, to kind of resolving those differences. Does it get heated with your brother? Mm, yeah, yeah, it does actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's also because of the closeness there. There's the family closeness. So you, that adds to it. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean you can try as hard as you can to escape having those conversations, but like they're going to come up at some point if you're, if you're in a room with other family members, it's like it's just impossible to like avoid all topics that could be potentially controversial. Yeah. God, it's scary, isn't it? Sitting around with the family and everyone has a very extreme different view and you have to be careful what you say. Imagine being Bill Gates because you know what, he's obviously very wealthy and, and successful and bright, but he, whenever I've seen him talk and stuff, he just seems like a really nice guy. He seems so nice. And I've even seen him drinking poo. Did you see that? He was doing this documentary. Did you watch that? No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'm intrigued by what why was he doing it? Find out next time on the podcast. <laughs> no, well he there was this thing, I think it was on Netflix and you know, that he they wanted an, an interview with him and he had clearly basically said, Look, you can have an interview with me, but we're going to make it more about the projects that I'm doing because he's more interested in that, which is another sign for me that he's a great guy. He doesn't have an ego, doesn't want to talk mm. about himself. You rarely hear him talk about himself. He And his big thing, I don't know if you've seen, is, is uh, you know water and irrigation and toilets mm. and yeah. stuff like that, which, again, it's not a very attractive thing to be associated with. So, again, I, I, I applaud him for being that guy. Mm. And there was this scene where they were showing how you can get water out of poo and uh, to, to help, you know, impoverished areas where there's a lack of water and stuff like that. And it also then they can use the dry poo to, mm. to fertilize stuff. So I haven't said poo so many times on the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> but it showed him in, in front of what was a huge pile of it. I think it's human feces, mm. just like a huge pile behind him. And it was dried and it somehow led to sort of a water fountain, like d- mm. to put a glass under to a tap. So he just like, they said, would you drink it now, Bill? And he was like, I sure. Well, he doesn't sound like that. <laughs> Texan, I sure would. No, he, uh, how does he sound? Here at Microsoft, he said, yes, I'd like to try the water. Um, and he, yeah, he just, he, and he drank it right there and went, hmm, good water or something. So I thought, and, and, and so imagine being him and you are like the devil to a huge amount of people for no reason. Mm, I know. I mean, I don't know. You'd think it would be, Oh, I don't know how you live with that. But I also think with these people, it's like Bill Gates could be like, you know, an awful person in lots of ways. Like, you know, he could be like awful to work with, whatever. Like, you know, he doesn't have to be a saint. It's like, but there's no evidence that he's kind of um, controlling, you know, these the vaccine programs and like arranging the pandemic or whatever. And that's what I find weird is that like with these conversations with like um, my brother, for instance, I find myself having to be like... Um, like Bill Gates' is big defender. And it's like, I actually personally yeah. don't really care, care about Bill Gates at all. It's like, it shouldn't, you know, it's, um, he's being used as like this kind of weird scapegoat. And I think that is how conspiracy theorists often like change the conversation. It's like, they mm. can 
talk about like an individual or whatever that they and like you say you're not talking about the facts you're not talking about whether there is evidence for the actual you know conspiracy theory they're touting and you just the conversation just gets longer and longer discussing all of these like peripheral issues the red herrings yeah 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 exactly man that's so annoying when you end up defending somebody who you don't necessarily even like or support and you end up I, I've had that when I've had to, you know, I'm not I'm not a Tory or anything, but there have been times people have said things about maybe a conservative policy or Boris Johnson or Trump or something. People who, I mean, Trump in particular, somebody who I, I find yeah. his his views morally repugnant. But then I think, but that's that thing that you said wasn't quite right, though, because I don't think he did that. And then they're like, oh, you're defending Trump, are you? Hmm. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's exactly it. And then it's like, um, it kind of snowballs from you saying something that's quite innocuous to you being like, um, you know, a neo-Nazi or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I was suddenly wearing a MAGA hat just because I yeah. need to prove my point. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. God. What's next on the horizon for you? Are you thinking about other books and stuff or just continuing writing? What's going on? Uh, yeah, I'm writing another book. I'm, uh, my deadline's actually at the end of this month. Um, so it's called The Expectation Effect. It should come out sometime next year. And that's looking at self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, oh. But kind of, which is related to what we were saying, um, it's like how your initial kind of mindset can change your future in multiple ways. Um, but this is looking at things like the placebo effect in medicine, the nocebo effect, which is the opposite, where um, oh. you have a bad expectation and you become kind of ill because of that expectation. And then how actually this is kind of moving in, like the research is showing that actually these kinds of effects have like all kinds of ramifications for health and fitness and diet and education and ageing. You know, it's like um, throughout our lives, we're kind of affected by placebo and nocebo effects in ways that you just don't recognise. So aging is in, if you start to feel, because you do notice those people who maybe a partner dies or something and they're in their 70s or 80s and they die very soon after. Is that is that related? They sort of just sort of give up and they're like, oh, I'm old and lonely and I'm done now. Yeah, that's exactly it. And also kind of with retirement is a big issue. That It's like a milestone that then people kind of see like post-retirement as being like the start of the end of their life. And if you have that mindset, you're much more likely to kind of um, age less healthily and to die younger than if you kind of saw retirement as like just the start of like an exciting new part of your life. Wow, that's fascinating. God, I've got to have positive thinking because I, I worry because I'm like an old man myself now, even at 32, you know, because I'm just, I sit here, I'm so sedentary. And I got told recently because we had uh, Andrew Steele and Stuart Faramon, two science guys oh, who yeah. both said things about if you've got to be moving more uh, yeah, otherwise you're going to yeah. die younger so that scared scared me a little bit i've started walking around a little bit more but I'm, I'm sort of pottering more than walking and that's very worrying yeah because actually this research shows that the attitudes you have to aging like in your 30s and 40s will affect like your health in like you know 40 years time like when you're 80 it's kind of <laughs> it builds up a little bit but but and what's interesting is this is often like um independent of your actual activity so it's not just about kind of whether you're kind of doing exercise it's actually the expectations themselves for all of these kind of um, placebo-like responses can um can change the way you kind of biologically age through um kind of stress responses all of that kind of stuff so um, wow. yeah so i'm kind of deep in that at the moment i loved talking to david 
Or did my mind just make me think I enjoyed it to fit with my identity and purpose? Now, it was, it was good fun and very informative, and I can't wait to get hold of his next book. You can keep up with his work on Twitter on D underscore A underscore Robson. Find his website on davidrobson.me and get hold of his book on Amazon or anywhere else. It's in the show notes. All you guys, come join me on Thursday at 8pm GMT on my chat room. It's been such a pleasure getting to know some of you on there. It's really easy and it's free. You just click it and you don't have to sign up or anything or download anything. Just click the link in the show notes and, you know, at the right time and I'll see you there. Join me next week when I'll be speaking with Jesse Morton, a white man who became a jihadist terrorist and now works to infiltrate extremist networks and talks terrorists down. I thought it'd be an interesting counterpart to today's episode because Jesse is extremely intelligent and therefore a perfect example of somebody who fell into the intelligence trap. The week after that, we'll get back to part two of the Sadia Hamid story carrying on from last week. Please do support the show on patreon.com slash andrewgold for as little as £1 a month. For £3 a month, you'll get some bonus content, early access to the podcast, and it will be ads-free. You can cancel at any time. Today's episode only had a few minutes of bonus content, but sometimes the bonus content goes on for around half an hour. So if you enjoy listening to them, then that might be a good option for you. Get in touch with me on... I'm talking really advertisingly, aren't I? Get in touch with me on andrewgold underscore OK on Instagram or Twitter to let me know if you enjoyed the episode. I love hearing from listeners. Please do share the podcast with friends, tweet or post about it and review it. Thanks to those who have left reviews this week. They are usually all on Apple, but it appears a listener called Etienne has managed it through something called Podcast Addict. He wrote with five stars. Wow, what a great podcast. Have listened to eight episodes so far and each is a gem. Andrew finds really interesting people to interview and creates a great rapport with them, which leads to a very in-depth and authentic look at the story at hand. Thank you very much, Etty. And that's a very in-depth and authentic review as well. So I appreciate that. And I hope you stick with the podcast. On Apple, Louise Wiseman wrote, I've just discovered this podcast and I'm now busy binging my way through all the episodes. I love it. Interesting subjects, not the run of the mill for anyone who's interested in human behavior or just in other people's lives. I really like Andrew's style too. It's informal yet incisive. As if two people were just having a really fascinating chat in your living room. Episodes are a good length at around an hour, which means there's time to cover lots of interesting stuff at a nice, easy pace without rushing. Give it a listen. That's a lovely review, Louise. Really beautifully put together. I'm so happy you're enjoying it. And again, I hope you stick with it. That's all for this week. Hope you enjoyed it and see you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.